Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, the Surrey policing saga continues as the mayor says Surrey police members are ready to leave for the RCMP. The SPS union says no, they're not. We'll have the latest. Plus, Amazon is expected to pull in $10 billion in revenue during this year's Prime Days. We get a peek behind the curtain and see how the global operation works. Plus, back from the dead, the Vancouver Folk Festival returns this Friday with a lineup of global artists. We'll have the latest. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Last night's council meeting, councillors received their first progress report on the RCMP. In the report, council were told that 15 Surrey Police Services officers, so SPS members, are in the hiring process already hired. We also heard that 81 SPS officers have indicated they would join the RCMP. Eight RCMP cadets are joining the detachment by August of 2023. And two police officers are transferring to the Surrey RCMP. Now, the SPS union uh, says that 81 SPS officers are not patching over to the RCMP. They say it's not true. They also say that 95% of their members signed their names to on paper, indicating they will not join the RCMP. And they've also had that further hundreds of RCMP members have approached the SPS, indicating they will apply once a final decision is reached by the province. So what numbers are right? What is going on in this present uh, time when it comes to the RCMP uh, and the SPS policing situation in Surrey. Only numbers that, of course, matter are those, of course, verified by the province. And we expect uh, the ministry, the minister, will have some sort of decision uh, next week. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the restaffing of um, of the Surrey RCMP and the entire Surrey policing situation is Brenda Locke, the mayor of Surrey. Your Worship, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jazz. It's great to be on your show. All right. Well, let's talk about the numbers first and foremost. Uh, the SPS says those numbers are not true. Uh, they were provided to you and council uh, as part of a progress report. Walk me through why the, you think these numbers are real, while the SPS union says they're not. Um, well, I, I think they're real. I know they're real because the um, the officer in charge gave them to us, and, and he knows uh, the numbers that are coming to him. Uh, I think that's uh, without a doubt. I can tell you too, though, Jazz, I talk to SPS members all the time. When I'm out on the street, if I see them, I, I always go up and, and try and have a conversation with them. And it's it's almost always cordial. Um, and I can also tell you that many, many of them have said exactly that to me. We don't We don't care whether we're SPS or another police department or the RCMP. And many of them that want to stay in Surrey are quite, quite open to coming to the RCMP. And we are all very, very open to having them join us. And that's uh, one thing that I think the officer in charge talked about yesterday. Why the need to have this progress report last night when you're still waiting a decision from the Solicitor General? Why not just wait? Well, well, Jazz, we made our decision. Um, the, the, um, we were given two options by the Solicitor General, and we picked basically option B. And so we're moving forward with that. He said you could pick the SPS with, uh, with some uh, financial implications, benefits to that, or you can pick the RCMP with some conditions. We chose to go with the RCMP. We believed that we could reach those uh, conditions. And now, after the first progress report, we know we can reach the conditions that were outlined. 
But isn't the decision when you say the 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 minister gave you uh, you know the opportunity to pick a, a, a police force, but that's pending approval from the minister and the provincial government. If they feel that law enforcement, the needs of core law enforcement are being met, sure they'll approve it. But that approval hasn't come yet. The minister is expected to make an announcement on whether or not there'll be enough police officers uh, and and law enforcement officers uh, to appropriately police Surrey next week. Uh, why not just wait? I mean, right. it's all well and good for you to say we've made a decision, and you certainly made one <laughs> during the provincial, the last uh, civic election. We get where you we, stand. We absolutely did. Yeah, well, but but, but he hasn't made a yeah. decision, and the ministry hasn't made a decision, and they are ultimately responsible for law enforcement in this city, not Surrey City Council at the end of the day. Uh, no, no, I think um, the minister and the premier were very clear that the decision is Surrey's to make. Um, he has to make sure that those conditions are met, and and we believe they are being met. And so we want to show the, the public and the minister that we are moving forward with the path that we deem appropriate for our city. And I think the other thing that everybody's ready for, I'm sure including you, Jess, mm-hmm. is we need to get on with this. We've been at this now for eight months. And uh, I know I've spoken with the minister. He, too, really wants to see this at an end, as does the premier. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're trying to do everything that we can as quickly as we can and demonstrate what we want to do moving forward. I think there's one other thing, just to make sure everybody's aware. Mm-hmm. There is only... Um, there was only two, there's now only one council meeting before we rise, and uh, all cities rise. We rise um, the 23rd, I believe it is, of July, so we only have one council meeting. We had to get some information uh, both uh, to ourselves and to uh, the uh, residents of Surrey, but also to the minister to let them know that we are serious, we are working uh, and moving forward on this project, and and I think it was a, a very good news story. I did tell the minister prior to uh, that being made public, that report being made public, that it was coming, so he knew. And so, um, yeah, I, I'm very comfortable in where we're at now, and know we can move forward. But you said that conditions have been met. Uh, the minister announced, announces something next week in regards to those conditions. He decides he's going to announce whether he feels, through the ministry staff, whether conditions are met. Yet you're already telling me here conditions are met. Isn't there mm-hmm. something fundamentally flawed in, in, in your argument simply because uh, the, the Solicitor General hasn't said whether those conditions are met? Well, he set the conditions and he said if you meet this bar... Then but he that, hasn't announced those whether you've met those conditions, right? That's my. They have to no, announce whether you've met them or not. Yes, but that was what that. Yeah, that was what the report was about, and that was the report that we gave back to him, and and he'll come out with uh, his decision uh, when he does in the next, um, I guess, ten days or. So I'm not I'm not exactly sure when he's coming forward with it. But the point of our doing a progress report mm-hmm. was just to say we've made our decision. Our decision, according to the Police Act, is is a decision for the city to choose its police department, and we've made our decision. So we are demonstrating that we can and are and will move forward with our decision. And so. Um, uh, the minister uh, will will come back, but I think it's important uh, for us to to demonstrate what we knew we could do. 
Uh, the report that was sent to the minister and the ministry, mm-hmm. the one he's going through now, uh, that has mm-hmm. that information, I think you and Pass had talked about uh, making that report public. Will the, re- uh, will the redacted report, the full report, be made public? Um, well, I've also said we would love to make it public, but because of the NDA that was required by ministry, we can't. Um, and some of that is sensitive information, which obviously would have to be redacted. But um, that'll be um, moving forward. I think that will all uh, come and see the light of day. And I'm sure that um, ministry will will want that to happen as well as we move forward. On so the, 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 rede- the redacted mm-hmm. part would, would stay redacted because of uh, sensitive information. But you are hoping yeah. to make that report public. Um, yes. uh, at, at some point. Yes, but, but that's with the agreement of the ministry because um, I, obviously we signed an NDA with the ministry to mm-hmm. to uh, read their report, which uh, facilitated ours. Um, I've asked you this before, but I, I want to get this on for the record. If the minister feels the conditions have not been met and that he would recommend that you stay with SPS, what happens next? Will that mean you, the city, will take the government, the provincial government, to court? You know, um, I I won't go down that road yet, um, but I will tell you that we will, we will continue to negotiate with the province. Um, quite frankly, I, I will not take no for an answer. Um, so it, it's... It's about meeting the conditions that the minister wants, and I and I understand his concern, and so um, we will uh, we will do everything to make sure that we've met the bar that he sets. And I have no doubt at all mm-hmm. that the Surrey RCMP can do that. They have uh, demonstrated uh, in, incredible professionalism up until now, and I'm I have no doubt that they can meet that bar. I think. Um, I, I'm positive they can, so I have no concerns with that. Well, even before the announcements made, you've pretty much here said today that you will uh, fight for the RCMP right to the end as much mm-hmm. as you possibly can. My argument mm-hmm. to you is look, you, you came in saying you you wanted the RCMP. You fought the good mm-hmm. fight. If the minister says, look, we feel, based on what the ministry staff have said, that we should stick with SPS, why not say, okay, we accept, let's move on, you fought the good fight, that you do not, you do not need to continue to, to prolong this? Oh, sorry. Um, <clears throat> never take a drink of water in the middle of an interview. <laughs> no problem. Have a glass um, of water. <laughs> sorry. Um, do you want me to, I'll phrase I, the question for you one more time. Um, if, uh, in this case, as I've said, the minister comes back with SPS, and I know where you stand on this issue with RCMP, you know, you can say with your head held high, look, I fought the good fight, but the senior level of government has decided, let's move on for the sake of this city and stick with SPS and continue with the transition. Why continue this fight? You fought the good fight already. Because they're wrong. If that was the decision of the ministry, they're wrong. And so we have to make sure that we have turned over every single uh, rock, every piece of paper we can to demonstrate to the minister and the ministry that for this city, and I can tell you as a person in local government, we know our cities 
better than anybody does. We certainly know what it is on the ground. We know uh, the feeling of our cities. We know uh, what people are saying on the ground every day in every grocery store. And that is what the people of Surrey want. They want to keep the RCMP. This is not saying that ministry is is um, is definitely wrong in having having an academic opinion of it. But on the ground, it is absolutely wrong for the city of Surrey to uh, go with the Surrey Police Service. They just will not be able to deliver the kind of policing we need in this city. Brenda, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I know you've got a busy schedule. appreciate you making time for our audience. Thank you very much. I know. Well, one of Vancouver's favorite music festivals is happening this weekend. The Vancouver Folk Music Festival will be taking over Jericho Beach uh, from July 14th uh, to 16th. And, of course, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, the uh, Folk Music Festival for other reasons. And uh, so the fact that we're actually talking about uh, the festival itself as a performance, as a show, is great news. Joining me now to talk a little bit about what we can expect this weekend is Aaron uh, Mulan, a president of... of the board of directors for the Vancouver Folk Music Festival. Aaron, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. So, uh, what's it feel like just knowing full well you have a music festival this weekend compared to some of the conversations we were having earlier earlier this year? I feel excited and delighted. I am so happy that we're going to be back in beautiful Jericho Beach Park. We have a fantastic lineup, and I think. People are going to have a wonderful weekend in the sunshine hearing some fantastic music. That is great. Uh, what can we expect uh, on, on, on Friday? So um, I think one of the highlights of Friday night has to be the medicine singers. They are uh, started out as the Eastern medicine singers, a traditional powwow group, but they have joined with some other musicians into new territory uh, jazz and experimental electronic music and it's just something that's very hard to describe and not to be missed mm-hmm. also uh blick bassey is originally from cameroon now based in france and uh takes um the traditional music from his country to a new place so there's there's some parallels between these two acts that are rooted in tradition but um changing up in new and exciting ways. Mm -hmm. And on Saturday, uh, what time do the gates open? Is that 3 o'clock? No, uh, gates actually open at 10. Music starts at 11. Okay. So we go 11 to 11 Saturday and Sunday. So um, a weekend pass is a very good deal. You get to hear a lot of music. And uh, we are really happy and excited to be back. I think it's going to be a fantastic weekend. Um. How difficult was it to put together uh, this festival in regards to just finding the right artists, the organization that goes into this? I mean, you have to do this so quickly. I know you have uh, institutional knowledge and history uh, in many cases, but because of what you had to deal with, like how difficult was it just getting the artists and uh, involved, engaged and signed, uh, all of that? Well, we're really lucky as a festival to have so many supporters, friends, allies in the music business. So we had a lot of help from uh, a whole slew of people from other Western Canadian festivals who shared their lineups, who encouraged us to let us know who's available and really worked with us in the four months that we've had to put this festival together. 
Um, and given the short time frame, I think um, the lineup that we have is really diverse and remarkable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to refresh my memory and our listeners' memory, uh, what help did you receive uh, from um, the city hall or the or and and the provincial government? Well, the big supporter is the provincial government, yeah. and the uh, the festival funding that they provided was really a turning point for us. And I think one of the things that prompted them to act, the province to act, was the groundswell of support, the huge wave of support, when people realized that this magical festival was in jeopardy. And that it's and it's not just our festival. Of course, lots of festivals are having struggles. Uh, I think the fact that such an important event was under threat uh, really prompted the province to do the right thing and and put some support into the arts, which is so important to people, especially coming out of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Looks like you got uh, great weather this weekend uh, as well. If you're able to have a successful uh, festival this year, does that put you into uh, appropriate and decent financial footing for next year then to be healthier and and, and to move forward after that? It sure does. And also, uh, as a board and as an organization, we've embarked on a long-term planning process to secure our future to make sure that the the festival is financially viable. We're working on a number of fronts, looking for more grant funding, working on sponsorships, and increasing our donor base. A lot of people have come forward. uh, I was just looking at the festival program and the long list of uh, donors who have contributed to the festival and people who become monthly donors, sustaining supporters is so important to us because that little bit of money coming in every month mm-hmm. really helps us through the winter. Yeah. So, and this is something that as an organization, we're going to be wor- working really hard on after this year's festival Excellent. for the future. Excellent. Uh, now I know all, all these artists are fabulous. They're wonderful, but is there a particular artist or particular moment that you're really looking forward to uh, in regards to this weekend? Well, I'm a big William Prince fan, mm-hmm. so I'm very excited to see him live. He has the most gorgeous voice. Um, being uh, Irish, I'm looking forward to Susan O'Neill, um, who's a, has, uh, a singer from Ireland who has just a gorgeous voice. And uh, there's just, it's really hard to just narrow it down, though, because there's just so much. We're seeing, and I think that's one of the struggles always at the festival is running from one stage to another during the day to try and not miss anything. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm so happy that we're able to have this conversation because uh, you know a few months ago it was it was a different uh, different uh, story. That's for sure. Now, if people who haven't bought tickets want to learn more about the festival, where can they go? Um, the uh, thefestival.bc.ca that's our website Uh, you can just google Vancouver Folk Fest if you don't remember that and uh, all the information about the lineup the tickets are available um, and ticket sales are going steady but we've got lots of room in the park for people to come out and discover their new favorite artists because that's one of the wonderful things about our festival it is a festival of discovery where you get to instead of only hearing music that you know you you learn about new artists and and new traditions and things that are a, a world of discovery for you and that's one of the things that i love the festival over the years has really shaped my musical taste mm-hmm. and will continue to yeah that is for sure aaron thank you so much for your time today oh you're very welcome thanks for having me 
Well, if you're living under a rock, you probably wouldn't know what today is, but there's probably about 200 million people uh, around the globe who do. It's Amazon's Prime Day, and it is probably best described as a shopping uh, extravaganza exclusively for the 200 million uh, Amazon Prime members uh, around the world. It's happening today and tomorrow, uh, and it's uh, expanded to to, uh, 20 countries around the world. And uh, in 2022... Get this, sales reached globally $12 billion, that's with a B, $12 billion. Now, that's those are global numbers, of course, but, uh, you know, 300 million items were purchased worldwide. But even here in the Lower Mainland, the demand is uh, quite uh, significant. In fact, Amazon has four fulfillment centers, one sorting center and five delivery stations here in Greater Vancouver alone. And uh, most people may not realize this, but uh, Amazon employs... 10,500 employees in BC. So the next couple of days um, is uh, is a big day for Amazon, uh, just simply because of the demand that's out there. So it's not the time to catch up with the folks at, at Amazon, number one, but you get a sense of the operations that just getting all this stuff delivered to, to folks all over our province. Joining me now is uh, Darkhan Ermersen. He is uh, the operations manager for Amazon's Richmond Fulfillment Center. Darkhan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jess. Thank you. Uh, so I appreciate your time because I know it's a very busy day for you folks. What's it been like today so far? Oh, it's been great. Uh, so um, starting early in the day, as you know, right, Prime Day is a pretty big event for us. It's the uh, uh, biggest day of the year compared to the holiday season. Um, and then uh, the day for us started with a lot of excitement. Uh, associates were coming into the building, uh, pretty cheerful to be able to deliver the customer promise today. Um, but yeah, as we proceed through the day, orders kept coming through and we are right in the midst of the process. Uh, it, how big are these fulfillment centers? Yeah, I, I, I know I know you have one out in, I don't know if it's a fulfillment center, but I know you have a massive warehouse out in Tawasson and you're based out of the one in Richmond. Uh, how large are these fulfillment centers? Right. Uh, so the fulfillment center that I'm currently working at is uh, YFTX2. Uh, uh, it's uh, a little bit over 400,000 um, square feet um, and with the peak uh, operational capacity at around 700k packages per week. Wow. And, and that's for the entire lower mainland, but that includes or does that include other parts of the country, too? Uh, other parts of the country as well. So uh, the fulfillment center here, obviously, primarily suited for the uh, Vancouver area, but we do ship outside of the province as well. You do. Uh, is there Are there still plans to expand further? I was reading here, as I said, 10,500 employees here in BC for Amazon alone. Uh, are, is there, are there plans for further expansion in our province? So uh, the 10,500 employees that have been mentioned uh, uh, is... Uh, uh, also include our tech hubs that we have, and you have probably seen the post building that we have built in the downtown area. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you can see, uh, uh, the presence of Amazon in, in Canada is pretty vast. And um, for us, it's always day one. So we always have a positive outlook for, so, for the business. So walk me through this. I'm always amazed that if I'm able to order something today, you'll have it at my door by tomorrow. How does that process work from me from the click of a mouse with my order? How does that right. process work here in the Lower Mainland, where you're able to deliver something by the next late afternoon, early evening to my my door? 
Yeah, so that's a great question, right? So Amazon has over two decades of uh, logistics experience, so we have built a vast network. Um, so everything that uh, happens uh, logistically hap- starts at the uh, f- first mile of the delivery station uh, of the, the logistics network, which is us, the fulfillment centers. Uh, we work directly directly with vendors and uh, suppliers uh, to get the items stored in the facility, and this is when they become available to you to be purchased through the website. Once you purchase it, um, it goes through... Uh, the rigorous uh, process of picking, packing, uh, involving our latest technology. It gets shipped out to our sortation center, which is our middle mile um, part of the business. Uh, Sortation center sorts it out to the correct destinations, and after that it goes directly to the delivery station. Before you go on, where where is your sorting station located? So the one that we have here in BC is uh, located in Langley. Langley, okay. So you're at a fulfillment center, and then it gets shipped to Langley, and then after that, uh, a driver picks it up? Yeah, exactly. So this is where the um, the delivery agents pick up the packages and go directly to your doorsteps. And is this? And I'm going to assume this is a 24-7 operation, right? You have uh, employees working overnight as well, Graveyard? Uh, exactly, yeah. So we work, uh, we, we work um, uh, 364 days, so we only close on Christmas. <laughs> um, but, and this is all made for to be able to deliver the customer prompts. Uh, is there any way to go even faster? I mean, and I'm not saying that you should aspire to it because it's already fast enough in my book. But I mean, are you still challenging yourself to do even day of deliveries? Do you do do you do day of deliveries? Uh, yeah, so uh, this is actually um, um, what is Amazon working on right now. Um, for Canada, we have over 4,500 uh, locations where we offer uh, same-day deliveries. Um, and um, obviously everything is made for the convenience of the customer. So the, this is definitely what something that is business targeting for. Mm-hmm. Well, Darkan, I know you have a very busy day. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you just for having me. Well, many Vancouverites, uh, very interesting, they've, they've been saying they're seeing more rats on city streets, uh, and they're not the only ones, even local pest control com- uh, companies are seeing uh, more rats as well, and perhaps it's anecdotal, but we thought we'd check in with uh, Garth Silty, he's a senior wildlife technician at All Green Pest Control, uh, because it is something uh, we have been hearing a lot, a little bit more uh, this time of the year. Uh, Garth, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Jeff. Uh, thanks for having me on. So uh, walk me through this, uh, and perhaps it's anecdotal, but are you and, and those in, in your industry seeing an uptick in calls? Yeah, I mean, I, I can speak sort of in a limited capacity to what other companies are seeing. I mm-hmm. hear through the grapevine, obviously, it's been a busy time for rodents the last couple of years, but I can definitely say firsthand from our experience, we've been having a massive uptick in specifically house mouse and roof rat callouts. And why do you think that is? Uh, I mean, I think it can largely be attributed in some ways to um, historically we've relied really heavily on rodenticides as a province and things have kind of shifted now. Um, We as a company have always kind of been a bit less aggressive with the rodenticides and a lot more focused on structural exclusion and kind of a more holistic approach. Mm -hmm. So I think with it might as well be a lot of people are shifting away from leaning on rodenticides as much, uh, just as much as it is the population fluctuation. And so, uh, when you, when you say rodenticides, it's it's uh, it's the use of poison or something of that sort that generally you dealt with mice, and that was the way to go. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the 
A lot of the rodent control, I mean, for the longest time, it always kind of has been rodenticides is the go-to maintenance cycle solution that most larger companies rely upon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is integrated pest management that, you know, seal up holes, reduce nesting sites, change conditions, you know, there's other methods at play, but generally the cornerstone's always been a rodenticide control method. Um, and I think the industry is kind of on a shaky ground right now because, uh, a couple of years ago, that second generation rodenticide ban came into place, and it's you know now been per- made permanent going forward. And that so was that was brought in by what government? Uh, that's at a provincial level, so it's just BC that's contending with that. And you know we run into you know kind of I guess national policies for a lot of pest management companies that you know still still kind of view rodent management as being something that can be very very easily managed with rodenticides you know, in other provinces, right? So are we the only one that have, that have banned uh, the second-generation gen- rodenticides? You know, I haven't actually followed municipal, or sorry, provincial policy across the country mm-hmm. too closely, so I can't really speak to that. But I, I know, uh, to my knowledge, it's, uh, we're one of kind of the first, you know, big pushes like that. Generally, it's a, you know, a federal thing, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so in the past, so if, so if I came to you as a homeowner, or if it was another company, and say, look, I've got mice. How was that issue dealt with? Were they just traps that you would use? How was it dealt with in the past? Uh, well, I mean, I've been with uh, All Green for quite some time now, but in the past I actually did work for one of the largest companies in North America. One of the A lot of the big American companies have good presence in Vancouver, but um, I worked for one of them, and the process there generally was, yeah, just throw some poison down in boxes around the property, you can deploy some traps inside. A lot of times it was just deploy poison inside because it's, you know, easier as a company to go manage it that way. So that was usually what they leaned on is just throw poison all over the house inside and out. Everything dies, you know, done and done, minimum callbacks, very efficient, right? And, um, and that's now gone out of your toolbox in regards to, to dealing with uh, with mice. Well, I've been I've been with All Green for uh, six years now, and it's never really like I mean, rodenticide use on the exterior it is an item that is relevant from a maintenance standpoint. But we've always kind of leaned towards first generation rodenticides because of the reasons the second gens got banned. They're just not sustainable from a natural predator and wildlife standpoint, hmm. which is kind of shooting yourself in the foot if you're killing off the predators that were out there to help you in the first place. Yes. Um, but we've always kind of gravitated more towards, uh, you know, snap traps, as funny as it sounds, just what you can go out and buy from the hardware store. If you got mice in your house, they're just good old fashioned wooden or there's plastic ones now and every different variety, but just a good old fashioned snap traps, actually instantaneous, humane. It's a, a great way to go for dealing with mice inside your home. Hmm. Uh, what are the things that we're going to have to deal with uh, moving forward? If, if we've banned these second generation rodenticides, how do you deal with um, rat and, uh, and, and, and control of mice? Uh, I mean, is it going to, are we going to have to look at construction differently, waste management? I well, mean, I mean, construction's a really big one. That's a, a big part of what we do because we, like as a company, we're actually a lot more construction oriented uh, than most in the industry. Like we're not as, we do the maintenance end of pest control, but we mostly deal with that and going and retrofitting like, you know, rain screening is a good example. Post 2006 construction, you've got by code a thin nylon insect mesh guarding a gap around the home that in many styles of construction leads directly into first floor soffits where you've got electrical running to exterior lighting that mice can then follow into the structure, transfer to plumbing, drop on the plumbing and then show up on site, you know, from the side of your dishwasher, right? 
<laughs> so it's, and that's just my, that's a house that's built to code. That's just, you know, uh, mice are not really a concern. The only mention of pests in building code is insect screen, right? Which is not a chew resistant solution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does Vancouver have a rat and mouse problem? Um, it, I mean, it's kind of subjective to say it. I think every urban center is always going to have rodents. Uh, I definitely am of the opinion that more could be done for it, but it gets into that. You know, right now rodent control is the city's role in it largely about their own municipal sites and parks and such. Um, and then, you know, obviously individual homeowners, businesses, individual landowners are responsible for their own properties. But I, I find that that's kind of created a bit of like, a it's not my problem. It's your problem. It, you know, it, it, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Like it, it's not something that's really being taken from a central point of, you know, like a common good thing of like a good example is that you walk around the alleyways of Vancouver, the rats that people have been seeing everywhere. Well, yes. those rats are reproducing somewhere and rats don't actually find their ways into structures very easily based on size. Like house mice are, you know, outweigh rats massively in terms of call volume in the pest industry because they're so tiny. They can fit through the size of a pencil eraser with their skull and then compress the rest of their body through the hole. Hmm. But rats, on the other hand, a lot of them aren't actually nesting inside of physical structures. A lot of it's stuff like just walk down an alleyway and you see, you know, a little bit of deterioration in asphalt and you can see, you know, rodent droppings all around it. You can see it's been burrowed out and there's whole rat dens underneath the concrete, little deficiencies in foundations, just small things that could be just be patched up and maintained, you know, from that perspective specifically of reducing nesting. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the most humane thing that could be done that would give long-term results is just reduce nesting sites, reduce shelter for them, and it'll actually naturally and humanely bring down the population numbers and make it, you know, far less of an issue than it currently is. Now, other cities are bigger, and, and I've seen some huge rats in, in my travels uh, as a reporter around the world, and uh, I'm no big fan, but what I found quite interesting is the city of New York has a, a rat czar. Uh, do we need something yep. like that? Like Because this morning when I, we were talking about this story to chat with you, uh, it came to, I remembered reading an article not too long ago that the city of New York has a rat czar. That's what they're responsible for in a city of 10 million people. But, you know, I know the city has some folks who work on it when they're called. Vancouver Coastal Health is involved. And as you say, uh, when you are called, uh, they work with homeowners as well and all that sort of thing. But there doesn't seem to be an integrative, integrated look at all of these issues. Do we need something like what New York has, which is a rat czar? Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I, I saw the news about that, um, like, you know, a while back when that was in the news. I, yeah. I actually it was like, ah, oh, that sounds like a dream job. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I think that it's something like that would be really awesome because there are things that are less, you know, like, again, like rodent, um, you know, nesting in just small little spot deficiencies in alleyways is just, you know, one, if you were to take one item that's, you know, a, a really big and key thing. But like little spot nesting sites and just not even preventing structural access, but reducing nesting within the city and reducing reproduction uh, through that. Mm-hmm. Um, like things like that are kind of, it's no one's real responsibility. Like no, in my experience in the pest industry, no uh, landowner really wants to get into like, hey, you know, at the backside of this large commercial site, let's go and really patch up the alleyway and reduce nesting sites. Like we, we often suggest it and that, you know, goes kind of unanswered or you know, oh, that sounds like a city thing. A city's like, well, we don't do that kind of thing. And, you know, it's there's some kind of gray areas that I feel like, you know, it, if it were to fall on anyone, it would be a municipal thing. And it, 
I don't think would be an exceedingly expensive thing for the city to undertake having like some standing, um, just like environmental management uh, to kind of complement the existing integrated pest management they have at their municipal sites. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, I want you to spill the tea a little bit because uh, you, you obviously know this area well. What, uh, you know, one, two or three cities in your mind uh, have a, sort of a higher volume of rat activity these days that, or that you've seen? I mean, honestly, they are, like I can say genuinely, they are everywhere. Um, I would say downtown Vancouver obviously is highest concentration, but... Um, a lot of other cities, like we get really high volume of callouts for rat activity, specifically in Richmond. We get a lot of callouts for Burnaby for rat activity. Uh, the North Shore, uh, Lower Lawnsdale area, kind of a funny one, but they uh, uh, some of the larger rats you were mentioning earlier. We do have Norway rats or dock rats, some people call them around here. They're mm-hmm. you know verging into small cat territory in size, <laughs> but we do have them, but they typically stick to kind of coastal areas. Uh, their they're sheer size, like they just don't, they don't move through urban environments as efficiently as a roof rat or a house mouse can. Yeah. Uh, so they typically are, we don't encounter them as much in our day to day. So why, so downtown would be the epicenter or the, or the one area that has um, by concentration more than any other place. And, and why is that? I think it's just urban density, right? Like, I mean, it's just, you know, it sucks to say it, but there's just a lot of garbage. There's a lot of, like, opportunity for foraging, and that opportunity runs year-round. There's a lot of different kind of urban harborage sites, like, you know, again, mostly talking about burrowing into the ground in various areas, but there's a lot of, you know, concrete over your head. Like, you know, you want to talk about a nice, you know, housing situation. Rodents have no problem finding housing in downtown Vancouver right now. It's to settle down, start a family time for them. Well, uh, that's the one thing most people can't say with the rents, with the way downtown <laughs> Vancouver, but I'm glad the rats feel that way. Out of curiosity, uh, what's the biggest rat you've ever seen in Vancouver, in your world? Uh, I will be Norway rats by species, but yeah, I mean, it pretty high. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what the weight was of it, because uh, the thing is a bit far gone without getting too yeah. <laughs> graphic on the radio, but... Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, about maybe eight, eight, ten inch long body. That's a good size. That's a good size. They they get up there, but again, those ones aren't the ones you have to worry about. It's humorously the smallest, cutest things that'll cause the most headache based on the size of them, right? Yeah. Absolutely, and and is, does the weather now with the, with the really nice weather does, does that have any impact in regards to just them being around, and them feeling more comfortable, more of them, and does the heat help or decrease? Uh, uh, to an heat? extent, yeah. I, I mean, you get a lot of natural, like you think of like you know brambles and such. You see a lot of natural, like berry bushes, this that, like various food sources that just crop up inherently all throughout the city. Uh, and that's seasonal for food sources, right? And then the other big one is shelter. Um, in the winter, it gets just cold enough that uh, a lot of shelter sites aren't suitable for, say, mice to have babies. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to find something that has you know, a little bit of warmth or like a really, really good burrow. But, I mean, it's almost effortless for them to find somewhere warm enough to have babies, you know, all summer long. And they inherently just, you know, biologically just are more driven to reproduce spring and summer. Uh, not to say that they can't year-round for a lot of rodent species, but generally you'll see that population start spiking with the warm weather, more favorable breeding conditions, more plentiful food source. Mm-hmm. 
uh, like they have huge reproductive potential and it's only really limited by food, water, shelter. But all those three are present typically throughout the summer months. So it's, you know, end of summer, like right around now is right when things get bad and they naturally do kind of get themselves in check a little bit coming into fall and winter. Mm-hmm. Garth, uh, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.